We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15. We've been working our way through um, the book of 1 Samuel now for several weeks. I'm just kind of looking chapter by chapter um, at this historical um, theology, right? That it is telling a specific history out of a specific era in Israel's um, timeline of roughly 1000 B.C., um, while at the same time highlighting not every name, every date, every specific act, but it's telling um, the story of the rise of the monarchy um, from the period of the judges, revealing the character of God and highlighting just the complexity of life, right? That it doesn't whitewash people's stories, that we see victories and we see defeats and we see that folks are complex and that sometimes they're tragic and yet that the Lord is in control and He is gracious um, throughout. And so um, the last couple of weeks we have looked really in, in, at, at Saul, who is the first king, and have seen some of his wins and some of his losses um, and just the difficulty that, that Saul is having. Remember, he didn't really even want to be king. He was found hiding in the baggage. Um, but we see even at the end of um, 1 Samuel uh, 14, right, that, that, that he won a lot of victories. And so, listen, the, this morning's passage has a lot to unpack. Um, we're going to read through it, and I, I would imagine there'll be some wide-eyed moments um, as you are reminded or maybe you're hearing some of 1 Samuel 15 for the first time. It's one of those that if you were a Sunday school teacher, you're glad it's not your lesson, right? And you want to move quickly on to David and Goliath or something like that, all right? So um, we're going to go ahead and read all the way through it, so you will just get all this shock out um, to begin with. All right. Um, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down away from the Amalek, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated them from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? 
And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and it has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Samuel said, Bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag, Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. There's a lot there. Right? It's, a, it's a, an emotional scene. You remember, as, as the people have requested a king, a king that would be like the nations, that Samuel had told them, he had told Saul and told the nation, listen, if you will obey your king and you will obey God and follow His commandments, if you'll obey your true king, it will go good for you. But if you choose not to obey, then the hand of the Lord will turn against you. Right? They have been told this. They have been promised this. Um, and, and Saul has already lost that, um, that his son would not be the descendant, that the, the king would be taken away from him, the monarchy would be taken away from him and his descendants. Um, but he is still acting in the role of king at this point. And so really where I want us to start this morning is this. I just want us to look at the character of God. Because I would imagine there's some questions, some things that are already stirring in your mind of like, hey, I'm, 
I'm bothered or I'm comfortable with some of this. And so we're going to work through and, and look at the character of God before we look um, back at Saul and some implications for us. Um, in verses 1 through 3, we basically see God commanding His people to go on a holy war, right? To go out after Amalek and to destroy them completely and fully. Um, and, and you're going, okay, man, what did they do? Like, why them all of a sudden? And what we see is that in Exodus 17 um, and in Deuteronomy 25, we get some backstory that this is an, an ancient beef. Um, and that as, as Israel was escaping from Egypt, in Exodus 17, this is right after the Lord had provided water from the rock. Um, the, the people are weary, they're tired, they're in the wilderness, they've escaped um, Egypt, and they've escaped Pharaoh's army. Um, it says in verse 8 of Exodus 17, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And this is then the scene where, if you remember, Moses goes out above um, on the hill in his arms, right? As he's holding the staff up, then Israel's winning and they're defeating Amalek. And when his arms sag, right, they begin to lose. And so Aaron and Hur hold up his arms. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." We get a little more clarity in Deuteronomy 25, um, in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. He cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, then you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. You shall not forget. All right? So Amalek had attacked the people of God as they are leaving Egypt. Um, we, we see here a, another group, the Kenites, who had actually been gracious, right? And so because they had been kindness to the people as they were passing out of Egypt, right? Saul warns them and spares them. But we have this people with this, this ancient um, attack so they have been, it's been prophesied, listen, the people of God will eventually, God's going to wipe them out. There will be judgment against them. And so what we see here is this is less war and more judgment. That the, the people of God are acting as agents of judgment um, to fulfill what God would have against the Amalites. And so there's a reason that he would say, I want you to destroy all of it. There's no advancement here. This is not an act of war in defense. This is not a war of gaining land or spoils. This is an act of judgment. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wipe the sin out. So it all needs to be gone. And you're not going to benefit from this because this isn't about you. This is about God's judgment upon them. So no spoils, no, no people, no, like we're going to wipe it all out. Okay, so we can understand what's going on here, right? That it's judgment. It should still alarm us, though. Like, we shouldn't be like, yeah. All right, God. Right, there should still be some concern here and bother us a little bit. And here's why. We have too sanitized a view of sin. 
right? We're like, sin, God's okay. Like, he's going to forgive me or he's going to overlook it. We have too low a view of God's holiness and too sanitized a view of, of, of our sin that we want to just kind of divorce ourselves from sections of Scripture like this where we see how God actually thinks and feels about sin, that he will pour his wrath out and wipe out an entire people. Because, right, your mind is probably going to, listen, if he's going to attack them, the men, I, I can, maybe I could be okay with that, but the women, really? And now we're going to take out kids and families? What is going on? And we have to be reminded that we all are stained by sin. That there is no one who is innocent in God's eyes. Right? We have sinned against a holy, righteous God. And so we don't walk around as innocent until we sin big. We walk around as guilty. Right? Like, that before a child can speak, a child is sinning against his mother and father, right? As they're expressing their angst. Right? As they're hitting. As they're, as they're showing who they are. Showing that they are stained and marked by sin. And so yes, we use language like innocent, but we are not innocent before God. And so there is, what we're seeing here is the vengeance and the anger and the wrath of God, the judgment of God on sin because He's holy. And so the question really we should be asking is, why only the Amalekites? Like, why just them? Like, this is really what we all deserve. Listen, there is still coming judgment. But every knee at some point is going to bow before God. And you will do it as a willing participant rejoicing at your king, or you will bow because you will be judged and defeated in terror and in fear. Right? And so we try sometimes to remove ourselves from stories like this. Listen, this should immediately run us to the cross where we see the same vengeance and wrath and judgment on sin poured out at the cross. The difference between the cross and the Amalekites, the Amalekites is this. They were guilty. So were we. Jesus wasn't. He was innocent. Without sin. Without sin. Not, not, he was innocent. The only one who's innocent. And so the wrath and anger of God that we see poured out on an entire nation here is poured out on Jesus on behalf of humanity. Right? Because this is, the Amalekite's story is our story if it's not for Jesus. That we would be utterly destroyed because of our sin and our rebellion against a holy God. And so it should make us uncomfortable. It should make us squirm a little bit. But we should see the cross looming larger because the wrath of God was poured out on the innocent one, Jesus, to cover the guilty ones by His blood. And it's why we look at it and trust in Jesus. It's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we go, it's in that moment. It's not my church attendance. It's not my behavior. It's not my morality. It's not my avoidance of big sins. It's Jesus that has appeased God's wrath against me, or it's not, and you still stand in judgment as an Amalekite. Right? Like, there's only one of two. And it should be a fearful thing for us this morning to consider the fact that we might oppose a living God. Like that this is God's holiness and we have rebelled and sinned against it. Now listen, there's a reason that we, as, as, as the people of God, do not go out on holy wars now. We're not a nation. We don't have geopolitical boundaries, right? We, don't have an, we are the church. 
We are a spiritual entity, right? And so we, we do wage war in the spiritual sense, right? We, we are a spiritual people waging war against the powers and principalities um, that we, we cannot see. But we are not a people that go out looking to kill God's enemies, right? Because of what happened at the cross. We see, though, that the people of God, right, win against a mighty enemy. The church will win against mighty enemies. And nations that right now, nations, governments, plots, clans, they will fall and they will totter before what right now the church doesn't, right, the people of the world might not look at the church and see um, a strong enemy. But every enemy will fall at the feet of Jesus. And so the reason that we see Samuel at the end kill Agag is because he is fulfilling what God has asked, that they would be obliterated and wiped out. Where Saul was unwilling, the man of God steps in and does it. And it is an uncomfortable scene that should leave us bothered. But would we also be reminded that the vengeance is the Lord? For those who have faced injustice, those who have faced difficulty, to be reminded that God sees and His holiness is offended by the lack of justice, the lack of obedience, like that He will act. Right? That we, we can take hope and security in the fact that because of Jesus, that is not our story, and we can also trust that He will act accordingly and right for that injustice that has occurred. That's a heavy thing. But His love has peace, and His justice makes a difference. All right, we're going to listen. There are whole books on this subject, okay? But we're going we're gonna to move forward. Um, we can definitely have more conversation about this. Um, probably most of our GC leaders are not sad that GCs are not meeting this week. Um, in verse 10, though, we see this phrase. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. And you're going, wait a second, God's regretting? That's, what some, that's what something that, that man does. How can God regret? Does that mean he made a mistake? Does that mean he didn't know what Saul was going to do? What's going on here? Because we know in Hebrews 13, right, this says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That one of the, the characteristics that we love about God is that he is immutable. Right? He doesn't change. That he is consistent. Um, it, we love that even more in the days of COVID, where it feels like everything is waffling, right? And we're like, man, security, steadfastness, faithfulness, like we love that about God, and yet what is going on here that it would say that He is regretting? We see it at the end as well, in, in the very last verse of chapter 15 and 35. And the Lord regretted that He made Saul the king over Israel. Listen, I love that the, the writer of 1 Samuel understood that some people might hear this and run with it in a dangerous direction, right? And say, look, God doesn't know the future. God's, he's confused. He's made a mistake. Um, he, he's waffling. And so look at verse 29. Right? He anchors us again. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so we see kind of two true things in 1 Samuel 15. 
that God regrets in a way and that He doesn't regret. Right? So we're going, okay, well, which is it? And here's what's, here's what's going on. There is, and the language here of His regret is, is emotive, right? It's, 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 it's emotional language. And maybe the best um, illustration we can have of this would be a parent having to, to really firmly discipline their child and their child rebels against it or has a horrific reaction. But the parent didn't sin against them. They didn't exasperate them. It was, was healthy and right discipline and the child just chafes under it. Right? Whether they, whether they walk away or they yell or they run away. I mean, they do so- and you would look at the parent and say, oh, man, what, what are you thinking? And they're like, I regret that, but I would do it again. Right? Well, they're not saying, uh, because they responded that way, I would not again act in the same accordance. I regret how it went down. I, I feel emotion over it. And I feel brokenness over it, but I would do it again every time. What God is saying here is, listen, Samuel, I knew, I knew what Saul was going to do. But I'm helping the people understand, right, that I am emotional over this too, that they have chosen poorly in wanting a king instead of me. And that Saul has not followed, he has not trusted, he has not obeyed. And so he is feeling this emotional regret and still at the same time saying, I would do it again. I would make Saul king. I would let the people move forward. And there will be another. Right? Like that he is expressing and helping the people understand right, that God is involved and He does care. But you can, you can rest assured that God does not change. So let's look at Saul. We've looked at the holy war and regret. Um, again, we could linger on both of those for the entire sermon. But verse 9, we basically see that Saul is disobedient. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And listen, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the fattened calves and the lambs, all that was good. And they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So basically, Saul comes in and goes, hey, I'm going to do what God asks mostly. I'm going to do most of it. But man, some of this stuff is nice. I'd hate for it to go away. And we won, right? We won the battle. And so if God was displeased with what I was doing or how I was leading, we would have lost. And so look, I've won. So we might as well not benefit from this. Right? Saul has continued over and over, chapter after chapter, to show that he is spiritually blind, that he just is a little dense and doesn't get it, that he continues to not um, serve God correctly, or he does not, he acts out of step, right, in offering sacrifices that weren't his to make, or he doesn't seek God's guidance. And so in this, he actually is proud. He's won the battle. And look at some of the interaction now. So he goes, instead of giving devotion and glory to God for bringing victory, what does he do? He goes and raises a monument to himself. Right? It's probably going to happen anyway, and yet he does it to make sure that people are going to remember what has happened here. We see his pride and his concern for his reputation. And so, so Samuel walks up, and you can just imagine, I mean, Samuel is heartbroken over this. He's hearing the animals. He knows that Saul has not obeyed God. And so he comes up, and, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself 
So, so Samuel in verse 13 came to Saul, and Saul said to him, like, blessed be you, the Lord, I have performed the command. It's like your child, right? Saying, look at how clean my room is, and like their door can't quite shut to the closet, right? Didn't I do good? Reward me. And on a major scale, Saul is going, Samuel, my friend, my prophet, the man of God, applaud me. I've done what the Lord has asked. Samuel, with, with anger, with, with brokenheartedness, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And so Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the... Right? Who did? The people. What is Saul doing? He's already blame-shifting. He's not saying, well, wait a second, I'm, maybe I made a mistake. He's like, they did it. They did it. The people brought them. They're already making excuses. But listen, they spared the best. The best of the sheep and the oxen. Why? Because we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. Right? Like, well, I may be in trouble here, so let's baptize this real quick. Hey, so we saved them. They did it, just in case you're still mad. They did it. But what I'm, my plan is we're going to go ahead and sacrifice them, offer them to the Lord. Like that's, are we good? Like you can almost hear the panic rising up in Saul. The rest we have devoted to destruction. Like we, we mostly did what God wanted. Verse 16, Samuel said to him, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul, Saul looks at Samuel and goes, speak. Like, right, there's just... Say what you got to say. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? And what an indictment on Saul. And you're doing this because you're weak. You don't think highly of yourself. You're not acting as a king. God put you in this role. You do what God has commanded you to do. It doesn't matter what the people say or want or think. You are God's representative. You act, and yet because you think too much of yourself and too little of God, your fear is what the man, uh, what 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 mankind, what the people of Israel think. The Lord anointed you, the King of Israel, and He sent you on a mission. And He said, "Go and do this." Why did verse nineteen? Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said, "Listen to." I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I mean, you can imagine, like Samuel just wants to rip his hair out, right? Like, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag the king. And he's like, he's saying, here's what I didn't do, but I did it. And if you have a toddler, you've had this conversation, right? Of like, did you do it? No, but listen, look how good I am. Like, but did you do what I asked? No, but look. Right, and it's just like the insanity of this conversation. Some of you with teenagers are going, I'm having that conversation too. They don't have to be five. Um, and then he goes again in, in verse 21, and he blames the people again. The people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best, right? But we were going to sacrifice them. And then we have, look back at verse 15. Look what he says as he's blaming the people, as he's making excuses, he says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He doesn't say to the Lord our God. He's like, to your God. He is so detached from this. 
That he's right. It's why he's worried about his reputation. It's why he's worried about setting up a monument. It's why he thinks he could take a little bit and they still won. He's not looking to honor God. He thinks that's Samuel's deal. And so we just see just a, a, a fear, a pride, a concern for his rep, reputation. He, we see his self-interest. And even when, when Samuel is just continuing to like spiritually ream him, right? And it's like, I'm leaving, and this is horrific. Listen to what Saul says. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow. He's like, hey, so I get that you're mad and that you're going to leave, and that like the, it's been torn, um, but i got to go talk to the people. Would you come with me? Like, honor me before them. I don't want to lose this too. There's no repentance. There's no, God, I have sinned against you. It's like, but I'm going to lose. And, and we see that ultimately in, in verse 31, that Samuel goes with him, most likely concerned for the nation of not wanting it to fall into disarray until the Lord's um, anointed is revealed and is brought forth that he goes. And yet, what a sad scene. What should have been a moment of, of glory and of worship and Saul is being honored before the elders because he's more worried about his reputation and maintaining control than he is about the glory of God who put him in the role. So we see consequences. Look at verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to walk away. And remember, this is a king. He seizes the skirt of his robe and it tore. Like that he's responding like a child, like, you're not going to leave, right? and jerks, and, and a piece of his robe comes off, and Samuel just immediately responds, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And still, Saul's response is, Will you still go before me with the elders? Like, I want to make sure the, the leadership is cool with me. When he has just had the kingdom removed, and God's displeasure shown. Let's go back at verse 22. See what it is that God wanted. Samuel, as he is talking to Saul in the midst of this chaotic scene, says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Basically saying, you say that you disobeyed God so that you could offer sacrifices. Do you, Saul, do you seriously think that what God wants was a sacrifice or your obedience? Like, which of those do you think pleases him more today? Because if you're confused, it's not the religious activity that makes him happy. It's you obeying him. It's you, it's you doing what he's asked. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For the rebellion is a sin of, div, of deviation, divination, excuse me, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. And so, listen, he's like, listen, your rebellion is the same as sins that are condemned in Deuteronomy 18 where it lays out all these um, divination sins, right? He's like, so why, why is he comparing rebellion here to the sin of divination? What is the goal of, of necromancy or going to a witch? Or like, what, like what is the, the point of that? Right, it's looking to gain 
insight into how to act or not act while avoiding God. It's avoiding His wisdom. It's avoiding Him as, as a source of guidance. And it's saying, what should I do, but I don't want to ask God? There's another way, and it's an insult to His leadership and wisdom. That Saul has said, I'm going to, like, God, I understand what you said, but I think my way is a little better. Like, and I'm going to do it my way. Church, like, how often have we looked at something that God has revealed about Himself or His character, about what is sin or what isn't sin, and gone, I think you're too hard there. I would be more gracious. I think you're too merciful, or I think you're showing too, too much mercy. You should be firmer there. Right? Like that we would look at God and say, I think I know better. So that is rebellion in our heart because it's saying that we know more than what God does. We would be better at being God than He would. You must be mistaken. Of course God wants sacrifices. And so Samuel's like, no, 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 He just wanted you to listen. Again, uh, the, the comparison to children is, is probably too far removed because this is talking life and death, but how often have you heard a parent say, thank you for the card. Right? Thank you for the flower from the yard. I just want you to listen. Right? Like, just listen. That, that would show me more than a gift or a song, or write, do what I say. He's telling him you cannot cover it up with religious action. He wants our heart. And God wanted Saul's heart and obedience and for him to listen, not for unnecessary sacrifices. Church, the way we would say it today is God wants our obedience over our busyness. Because it's really easy to, to show up at church, to show up at Bible studies, to do a lot of religious things, and our hearts be far from God, but we feel like we have somehow like, convinced Him that we're doing the right thing. When He's like, I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to pray for one another. I want you to forgive one another. I want you to walk humbly. But God, I did another Bible study. But I want you to obey me. Right, like that we would cover our lack of obedience with spiritual activity so that people wouldn't push us on it or call us on it. Church, it's not enough to know all the right things if we're not obedient. There is not a test where you pass and it's like, man, you lived a horrible life, but you knew all the right things, so you're good. It's not enough to know the right answers and not live it out. It is not enough to use our religious behavior to cover up our sin. That is hypocrisy. Listen, hypocrisy is not a believer who sins. It is a believer who uses religious activity to pretend like they don't sin. To, to, to throw you off the scent. It is not sufficient to obey without a heart that is dedicated to God. Right? If we're simply doing it for our reputation, for our notice, for our monument, but it's really not about knowing, honoring, or pleasing God. And church, it is not sufficient if you convince me or anybody else, if you fool us, if you fool all your family and all the people around you, that you are a God-honoring, pleasing worshiper, and you're not. What have you gained? Because God knows your heart. He knew the motivation of Saul here. He knew what was going on. God knows what's going on in your heart. And so if you've convinced us, 
maybe you've gotten some applause, maybe you got a role, maybe like maybe you got something, but like you're going to end up losing your soul over it. Like we don't fear man, right? Who can't get to the soul? We fear God. Listen to how Isaiah says this. It's Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. I, I am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass? But you have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy Where is the wrath of the oppressor? He's basically saying, listen, you fear man who will die. I'm eternal. Like, I'm your maker. And I'm calling you into relationship. I'm calling you to know me. Why would you work your whole life simply to impress other folks who are going to die when you can know me? So church, this morning as we walk out of this difficult passage, Here's the good news for us. Jesus is our obedience. Like He lived the life we could not live. He's done it. It's been done. And then He took the wrath of God so that what happened to the Amalekites will not happen to those of us who trust in Jesus. And then He walked out of the grave. He is alive today. Hearing our songs and our prayers, ministering to us through His Spirit, speaking through His Word. Right? He is alive today. He is our obedience But guess what? He expects us now to walk in that obedience. To walk in that gift He's given. It does not save you, but is evidence that you have been saved. We are called to be holy as He is holy. Right? We are to rightly reflect the character of our God, which means we look like Him. And so, listen, if sin is before you this morning, repent. Because it is offensive to God. And whether it is big and public and everyone knows it, or it is only in your heart, and you could go to your dying day without anyone else knowing it, repent. Because your sin is an offense to a holy God who sees and knows it already. But know this, that in your repentance, you are going to find kindness and mercy from God. That His grace goes far beyond our sin. And that He rescues and He redeems. You will stand before God someday. And you'll either stand there covered in Jesus or you'll stand there alone. Covered in your sin. And there will be judgment. Or you can stand before God in Christ and you will find mercy and you will be brought in as an adopted son and daughter and you will be set at the banquet feast and you will be home forever. It is good news and it is offered. Church, it's the reason that we live on mission, that we don't simply huddle up in our corner of the world and say, listen, we got in, let's just hold on till He comes. There are people who are right now that you know and love who will stand in judgment before God because they haven't trusted Jesus. That we want to call them to repentance. We don't want to be afraid of passages like 1 Samuel 15 because God views sin as rebellion. And He will punish it. We have hope. So we don't walk away from 1 Samuel 15 afraid of God that's looking to smite us. We walk away knowing He's done that to Jesus and not to us. 
but we want to live in light of the fact that He hates sin and that we have grace and that Jesus should loom large for us this morning because He's rescued us. You think about all the darkness in your life. It is gone when you trust Jesus that He has forgiven you and been sacrificed on your behalf. So would we be a people who hold up Him because He's the good news. He's the hope. He's our salvation. Not our morality. Listen, the the band is going to come back up. We're going to sing to our King who's alive and well and hears our song. And then in a little bit, we're going to walk out of this building and our very lives then are worship. Right? That we would seek to be faithful and obedient. Not to earn God's good pleasure, but because we are His. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, there'll be some men, women in the back that would love to talk, to pray with you. Um, if you need to confess sin, if you want to come and pray on behalf of someone that you're asking the Lord to rescue, um, if, the, if the God has just been doing and stirring something in you and you need to talk, and this is a time for you to respond. So you can stand and sing, you can sit and let the Spirit minister to you, you can move and pray, but would we respond to our living King today? In Jesus I'm about to. I'm praying with my eyes open here. Would we do that though in Jesus's name? Let's pray. Father, would you speak? Would we see both the heaviness and the weight of our sin, and the grace and the lightness of our salvation? That you remove it. That you take our sin as far as the east is from the west. That you remember it no more. And so, Father, that if you are showing us our sin right now, if you're allowing the weight and the heaviness of it to to sit on us, that there is kindness and grace in that because you're showing us that we have need of rescue, of repentance, and of a Savior. Father, would we not be so arrogant as, as Saul to claim partial obedience and think that we should be applauded for it? Would we do the work of confession, of asking you to to reveal sin in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, Lord, that Your Word would, would, would reveal that, show us, God, that we would want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Thank You this morning that He is enough for us and that we get to come as those without money to eat freely because of what He's accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we want You, we need You, and we're asking You to speak this morning. In Jesus' name.